Welcome to Black Box by the Algorithmic Governance Research Network with me, Teresa S. Berkeldova. Joining me today is Sarah Brain, Assistant Professor at the Department of Sociology at the University of Texas at Austin, to discuss her book, Predict and Surveil, Data, Discretion and the Future of Policing, published in 2020 with Oxford University Press. Welcome to the show, Sarah. Thanks so much for having me. First, let me say that I have thoroughly enjoyed reading your book. There is by now growing amount of scholarship critical of predictive policing, dragnet surveillance, automated decision-making, profiling, and social sorting using big data, and the resulting algorithmic injustices, harms, and human rights and other violations. This scholarship, much like your own work, challenges the perception of data-driven technologies as neutral, objective, and by default superior to human judgment, while examining the consequences of these technologies for those disproportionately surveilled and targeted, and the ways in which these technologies tend to deepen existing inequalities and exacerbate structural harms, rather than delivering on the promise of a bias-free world. We have discussed a number of these issues in our previous podcast episodes. However, your book is one of the few in-depth accounts of the ways in which police departments, in your case, the Los Angeles Police Department, actually use big data analytics and predictive policing software. Your account does not only show how LAPD uses these technologies in the police work, be it in identifying suspects, selecting areas to police more intensely, or in conducting investigations and what their consequences are, but also how these technologies transform organizational structures, institutional dynamics, and power relations within the police. You show how the surveillance gaze can easily be turned by the management against the employees, eliciting collective resistance, individual evasion, and even outright sabotage. <laughs> Moreover, you link these insights together into a discussion of the magnified legal ambiguities that emerge as a result of the massive scale and connectivity of previously disparate data, forcing us to think about the transformation of law in surveillance and risk society. So we will discuss all these issues in more detail. But first things first, uh, how did you manage to gain access to LAPD? How did you go about your field work? How was it going on ride-alongs? And how was your interest in the use of predictive tools actually received by the police? Hi, thanks. Sure. So um, I wanted to study how the police were using big data and uh, predictive analytics, new surveillance technologies. And so I wanted to sort of pick a police department that was on the front lines. It was sort of a leader in this field, very technologically advanced. Um, and so I tried to gain access to the Chicago PD, the LAPD, and the NYPD. And what ended up working um, with the LAPD was I found there was this organization that um, at the time was called CPLE, the Center for Policing Leadership and Equity. It was uh, out of UCLA at the time and now is at John Jay College of Criminal Justice. And essentially they partner researchers with police departments to investigate issues around, you know, bias, use of force, inequality, and policing broadly defined. And I found that they did not have an existing relationship with the LAPD in that kind of way. And so I sort of like offered myself as a researcher interested in descriptively understanding, you know, how police use these kinds of new tools. And so um, someone within that organization introduced me to um, someone within the LAPD who is relatively high in the organizational hierarchy, like not the chief of police, but like a couple of rungs down in the organizational hierarchy, basically. And um, they agreed to an interview um, to start. And so, you know, based on just having this one interview, I decided to move out to LA for six weeks to, to just try and get access to more folks in the department and um, try and talk to more people. And so, you know, I had a, a great conversation um, with this person for about an hour, hour and a half. And then at the end of the, of the conversation, I said, you know, hey, can I go on a ride along? And so he was like, okay, you know, found a sergeant. I went on a ride along and ride alongs are great because they are basically, you know, like five or eight hour interviews. And so in the course of the ride along, I was taking some notes on the different divisions that the sergeant was talking about, um, different people's names. And sort of at the end of that ride along, I said, hey, you know, can can you introduce me over email to these people um, or give me their phone number? And so I set up future meetings. And so I sort of did that kind of like snowball sampling um, for the first six weeks to just basically see if I could gain sufficient access to folks in the LAPD. Um, and so, you know, a lot of people didn't return my calls or didn't agree to talk to me or, 
you know, I had some interviews where it was like 30 minutes of asking questions and they would say, you know, they would just not answer. They would respond to every question saying that's law enforcement sensitive. That's law enforcement sensitive. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, that, that phase of snowball sampling was very difficult, but very fruitful. Um, and so I sort of wrote up some analytic memos, realized, you know, I was, I was getting really interesting data, talking to lots of people, observing lots of important things. And, um, and so it sort of got a little bit easier from there, um, to do, you know, follow-up interviews and be introduced to more people in the department, because once, you know, folks relatively high up in the department, had talked to me, their permissions could sort of cascade down the organizational structure in that way. Great. And how did they respond to, to the book? <laughs> um, so the response, to be honest, the main response is like not a lot of response. Um, so, you know, I definitely like mailed off some copies and, uh, you know, from folks who, who had asked to ask to read it. And um, I hadn't heard back. I there i have gotten some feedback from them on two at two other points though um one was like because the project was sort of long in duration you know i was doing field work between 2013 and 2018 so i would sometimes come with them and say you know hey these are some of my conclusions not like a 35 page academic article because i wouldn't expect anybody to to sort of read that within within the department but like a one pager describing you know these are some of my key findings and um you know, descriptively, they really agreed with what I was saying in the sense that it was really important to me to get like the the, the facts correct, um, because I think that, you know, they've expressed that a lot of media coverage of surveillance tech um, in policing is like really inaccurate. And I think it's sort of this vicious cycle wherein like journalists don't have sufficient access. And so they try and write something, but then it's inaccurate. And then that invalidates their legitimacy like with law enforcement because they're like oh they you know they don't even know what's going on so sort of getting the facts right was really important for me and they responded like well to that um but in terms of some of the normative conclusions they would sometimes disagree so like you know for example one of my main arguments is the book in the book is that in the digital age um police are are surveilling and tracking all kinds of people who have no direct law enforcement contact. You know, they have no criminal record. They haven't been stopped by the police, but they're sort of subject to all this collateral data collection. And, you know, I remember talking to a captain about that argument and he said, I, I disagree. Um, you know, you still have to have police contact in order for us to be tracking you. And I was like, well, what about automatic license plate readers, right? Like that's a dragnet surveillance tool that gathers information on everybody rather than just those under criminal suspicion. And he was like, well, I would say that's an exception. Whereas I sort of think it's like indicative of a broader trend. Um, so yeah, they sort of responded in that way. And then the other time I heard um, from folks was when I wrote an op-ed um, in the LA Times um, about, you know, basically saying like, hey, there's all this like relatively secretive surveillance tech being used by the LAPD. And um, and they, they responded to some of that, um, you know, got in contact with me or whatever. And again, you know, didn't say that the facts were incorrect, but they were like, we don't think this is a problem. We think this is a good thing. And, you know, you don't like talk about all the benefits of it in this op-ed kind of thing. So yeah, I would say there was like definitely <laughs> some normative disagreement about some of the issues. Um, but overall, nothing too, too fundamental, I guess, in, in the critiques. Yeah, great. <laughs> so it, throughout the book, you show how big data saturates the American criminal justice system in a myriad of ways and how databases are being more and more integrated and third party data is utilized. And how this kind of logic of policing, uh, this, this form of policing uh, spreads into every new areas through an expansion of surveillance and profiling and risk scoring. Mm -hmm. And you're right of the importance of really understanding the social side of big data rather than kind of paying lip service to it and indulging mm -hmm. in tech washing. So could you expand maybe on what you mean by tech washing and on the role and power of private vendors, maybe such as Palantir and but also Microsoft and similar with their proprietary algorithms, which circumvent public sector openness and accountability regulations? Sure. Yeah. I mean, so I think that like, in reading a lot of the rhetoric um, around uh, the, the the promise of predictive algorithms, for example, 
or um, if you read sort of the, the RFPs, like the request for proposals that that federal the, the federal government provides to say like, hey, local law enforcement agencies, you can apply for these funds in order to do you know evidence based policing and and try using data driven tools, um, that type of thing. A lot of a lot of the rhetoric and the promise is about reducing bias or increasing efficiency, increasing accuracy. So it's sort of this this dual pronged thing of improving the efficacy, um, but also being more transparent and, and providing increased opportunities for accountability. And so I think like with that comes this this sort of like underlying assumption that data are objective and they are unbiased and they speak for themselves. Um, but, you know, as a sociologist and being able to observe like how data was actually used on the ground by by law enforcement, there is still a very, very human side to, to all of this story. You know, humans decide what data to collect on whom, um, how to analyze it, uh, for what purpose, and then what kind of law enforcement intervention to do based on these data. And the people that make these decisions are embedded in pre-existing organizational power structures, right? We we have social dynamics between, um, you know, individuals living in certain neighborhoods um, and the police, uh, people that that have been historically and currently discriminated against by the police. All of these types of dynamics end up getting essentially baked into. Um, the data that are sometimes spoken about as as objective or unbiased. And so the the tech washing term, you know, sort of a riff on like whitewashing or or greenwashing is basically just the idea that like through the process of quantification and computation and automation, it serves to like obscure and kind of render invisible a lot of the social dynamics at play that get baked into these data um, in the first place. And I think that, you know, you, you mentioned the role of private companies and, and there is this increasing role of the private sector in public policing where police departments don't have the, the in-house expertise in order to design, you know, artificial intelligence. Um, and so they end up contracting out to increasingly to tech firms. It's at like Palantir, um, Predpol, the the creation of these tools and you know the the private sector is subject to much less at least in the United States scrutiny in terms of um, transparency requirements etc and so sometimes like the predictive policing algorithms are proprietary or basic descriptive information about how platforms are used are not available to the public um, and so that sort of is another issue that some folks have. It's very difficult to, to hold these tools accountable in a way hmm. for the users of them. In this uh, first chapter, you trace the historical development of policing by numbers and, uh, and position uh, predictive policing as part of a larger trend towards quantification and algorithmic risk assessments in the criminal justice system and as part of efforts to decouple policing from politics, resulting in kind of bureaucratized, rationalized, centralized and hierarchical police of organizations. And you could argue this is also what lends them so susceptible to this kind of tech uh, products in itself. But uh, predictive policing in this context promises, as you said, improved efficiency and accountability as well as legitimacy and became increasingly pushed by the private sector. So could you kind of touch upon the key moments in this historical trajectory, which are kind of necessary to understand uh, where predictive policing is today? And uh, as we know it, I mean, there is history to, to these kind of technologies being used, but what has changed and what is kind of similar? <laughs> Sure. So, I mean, I think that this is a broader governance story, right? So the state has long used data to govern its citizens um, in order to allocate resources, in order to um, uh, make make all kinds of, of decisions. And the, the police are no exception. So, you know, for at least a little bit over 100 years, local law enforcement um, has been plotting crimes on maps, for example, you know, putting pins on a map, literally, um, and then directing patrol officers to the areas where all of the pins were, the sort of like hotspots where higher crime was. And I think there was a, you know, dramatic or rapid acceleration in um, this, this uh, what is termed evidence-based policing, sort of after the 1960s, like really in the 1980s, where hotspots 
policing became de rigueur, um, there was increasing like measurement of police dosage or presence and looking at response, um, you know, time to responding for calls for service. Um, and then you had the CompStat era of the 1990s. So this originated in New York City. It's basically the idea of using management principles and crime data um, in order to sort of um, uh, increase efficiency within policing. And then you had CompStat sort of spread more broadly throughout the country and the world to other police departments um, in general terms. And then in the L.A. case in particular, there was a lot of scandals on the LAPD in the 1990s. And um, so as a result, in the early 2000s, the LAPD entered into a consent decree with the federal government, which basically means that the department had to comply by certain standards in exchange for sort of the withdrawal of the, the criminal charges. And a lot of the things that they had to do was increase sort of data-driven decision-making and employee risk management. So what ended up happening was the department was collecting all of this data on their employees and trying to identify, you know, who were the high-risk officers, who were um, engaging in too many vehicular pursuits, who were engaging in undue use of force, this type of thing, who were the risks, if you will, to the department. And what ended up happening is there was this sort of um, increased reliance on these data-driven decision-making practices or data-intensive worker surveillance that then got parlayed into the crime control context as well. And this just accelerated even more in the wake of 9-11, which sort of ushered in this era of intelligence-driven policing, um, which relied heavily on prediction and the uh, integration of previously separate data sources. So the terrorist attacks of 9-11 were largely viewed as a case of information sharing failure in the intelligence community. And so, you know, the, the federal government built all these fusion centers, these data integration centers to, to um, collect and integrate data from public and private sources in order to make it available to federal law enforcement. And so there was this, this um, real push to data integration, prediction, intelligence-led policing um, that accelerated greatly in the in the early 2000s and was sort of like amplified by the introduction and reliance on predictive analytics in a whole bunch of fields beyond just policing, right? Like medicine and education, uh, labor, that type of thing as well. Yes, Cindy. <laughs> so I... In I would also like to know more about how this is being sold. One thing is that you have these kind of governance pressures, but on the other side, you have these kind of software representatives. And in your book, and I quote here, you write about that. You, you write, software representatives would demonstrate the use of their platform in non-law enforcement, usually military context, and then ask local law enforcement whether they would be interested in a similar application for their local context. So instead of filling an analytic gap or technical void identified by law enforcement, these software representatives helps create new kinds of institutional demand to sell lucrative platform licensing agreements. And this kind of sounds like a familiar story across industries, but in this case, I wonder also how it contributes to the kind of militarization of policing and this embracement of this intelligence uh, logic. I mean, you mentioned this intelligence-led policing and how it spread, but you know, what is the kind of role of the private uh, sector here in uh, you know using these military kind of tech and selling it to the police and so forth? We can say more about that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this was a fascinating part of the project for me where I would attend basically surveillance industry type conferences, where, as you said, tech companies would demonstrate the use of their tools in like counterinsurgency context and military context and say, you know, wouldn't you want to use this tech to, to catch bad guys in your city? And so this was really flipped from the, the way that I thought it, it was going to play out, which is I, I expected what was happening, the relationship between the public and the private sector, was that local law enforcement agencies would go to tech companies and say, you know, hey, we're having these problems that we think your tech might be able to solve. Or we have all of these sources of data that we can't integrate and we're hoping that, you know, your tools might be able to help us. But really the supply demand was 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 totally flipped as, as you sort of identified in that excerpt where tech companies would demonstrate their use in these military contexts and then they would get imported into local policing. And so, you know, there's a lot of fascinating scholarship about um, and journalistic coverage of the militarization of policing, but that largely focuses on the military hardware, right? Like the surplus military kit that is, is then gifted to local law enforcement agencies. Um, but I think like the creep of military 
software into local policing um, is, is a very untold and largely invisible part of the story, but I think it's very important because it imports all of these these logics um, in addition to just the technologies of counterinsurgency, of military control, of occupation um, into the local law enforcement context in that way. Yes, indeed. And then it has this kind of reverse side, right? You're right of the ways in which the ideology fuels the embracement of the technology, but it's also the quest for funding. And uh, you're right here also that the yes. LAPD spends hundreds of thousands of dollars on grant writers and criminal justice consultants and the department has vested interest in maintaining the cash flow, regardless of whether the originally funded technology is effective, right? So, so this reliance on yes. the grants and this kind of uh, budgetary, <laughs> budgeting these kind of grants and so forth, can you say more about these kind of funding imperatives for embracing these technologies? Yeah, absolutely. So this sort of partially came um, in the wake of 9-11 as well, where the federal government was increasingly funding local law enforcement agencies because they were sort of on the front lines of the the domestic war against terror. And so they were saying, you know, hey, you can you can get some federal funds if you access these um these, if you're able to use these predictive tools and data-driven decision-making practices and such. And so what was really interesting to me was that these incentives exist. And then what ends up happening basically is if law enforcement agencies get a particular grant, for example, there's this process that this one sergeant described to me as the budgetization of grants, right? It basically gets subsumed into the operating budget of the police department. And so regardless of whether or not the hacker actually works in the first place, there's sort of an incentive to to continue um, uh, making a case for its continued use um, in, in the policing um, practice. And so what ends up happening basically is they do this, they um, adopt the new technology or the new sources of data, the new evidence-based practices, the grant gets subsumed into their operating budget, and then they need to sort of make an ongoing case for it. And what is like so staggering to me is how thin the evidence base is for a lot of these you know, data intensive policing practices. And I think a part of the problem, um, and this is where sort of one of the arguments in, in the book comes in, is that, you know, again, data are not these like objective, unbiased sort of artifacts, um, but, but rather I think it's helpful to think about data as a form of capital. So it's impossible to, to sort of do an evaluation of outcomes if the only people that have access to the data um, are people who work in the law enforcement agency or who work at the tech firms that design the analytic software mm -hmm. that the LAPD uses. Um, so, you know, I think that that um, while there is a lot of, of discussion around the promise of evidence-based policing, the independent evaluation of these tools is, is sort of staggeringly lacking. Mm -hmm. Yes, and we will touch upon that uh, a bit later, but uh, before that, I was thinking we could uh, now move to discuss uh, how these tools are actually used in in practice. And in, uh, in sure. you discuss this dragnet surveillance and how we all can become incriminated because of these kind of ways these technologies and platforms can be used. And, and you also mentioned that, and I found that uh, particularly interesting, that these... Uh, that these platforms uh, used by the police support is a danger imperative or the idea that the police may face lethal danger and violence at the moment's notice and, and thus they possibly escalate already 10 situations. <clears throat> So maybe uh, maybe you could uh, you know because this this ties up with with the idea of how ideologies are actually put into <laughs> these kind of technological systems, mm. right? So maybe you could explain uh, what dragnet surveillance is and what uh, possibilities lie in these platforms. Uh, you mentioned this Gotham uh, Palantir Gotham, and in the integration of institutional data systems. And uh, and also, I wanted you to touch a bit upon what I found very interesting is the is the query based and alert based systems and how they work also together. Mm -hmm. So yeah, <laughs> sure, yeah. So so dragnet surveillance um, is is a form of surveillance that the police engage in increasingly in the digital age, where 
the surveillance tools collect data and information on everybody rather than just those people under criminal suspicion. So a sort of classic example of a dragnet surveillance tool is the automatic license plate reader or the Alpers. These are cameras that are mounted either on police vehicles or there are some static cameras mounted at intersections, for example, and they capture um, two photos of every vehicle that passes through their line of vision, one of the car, one of the license plate, and then it records the time, date, and geo coordinates. So just this like one relatively simple tool actually provides police um, with a lot of information about the distribution of vehicles and and therefore people throughout the city. You can, for example, like infer where somebody might be staying overnight based on where their car um, is parked outside, for example. And so what ends up happening um, with these these dragnet surveillance tools and the the sort of information deluge or information load that that police increasingly have, you know, they can can know the existence of of um, a, a warrant when they're sort of driving down the street, responding to a call for service, et cetera. The benefit to the police that they discuss is in improving situational awareness. Like this is going to this increase in information is going to provide police more actionable intelligence that will keep them safer, help them be able to do their jobs more effectively, et cetera. However, I have this colleague um, here at the University of Texas um, named Michael Sierra Rivolo, and he does some research with the police as well. And he sort of developed this concept of the danger imperative, the idea that police are sort of trained and socialized to, to believe that any um, interaction could become fatal at any time. So while, sure, there is some promise in all of this information that police can now have access to through some of these platforms, it can improve situational awareness and sort of make them more knowledgeable about the things going on around them. It can also have this, this sort of unintended priming effect of, of making them view the world and every potential interaction as even more dangerous. Um, so, you know, this question about does it make the police or civilians safer or less safe, I think, again, like an open empirical question in terms of this information overload. Um, and there was a second portion of your question that I'm just trying to remember. Can you remind me? Yeah, Sorry. I know how these platforms actually work because you have these nice descriptions oh. on how they search and you have these query-based, alert-based systems and, you know. Oh, the query-based alert-based. Yes, yes. Okay, so this was something that was really interesting to me. So, you know, for decades, the police have been using... Um, uh, platforms in order to have been using query based systems. And so by that, I just mean like the police searching somebody's name or license plate in the system. You know, when the police pull someone over on the side of the road, the first thing that they do is they run the license plate, see if there's any outstanding warrants on that vehicle, et cetera, et cetera. That's a query based system. And while those are very useful, that is very much a one-to-one -one surveillance ratio, right? It's one police officer surveilling one person. However, what the, the proliferation of all these digital data and these automated systems um, is, is enabling is the, is the emergence of alert-based systems. And so by that, I mean, instead of the police just being able to do this like one-to-one -one surveillance, they can shift the surveillance ratio from one to many, where you have like data being passively and in an automated way scanning all the time in the background and then when a particular configuration of variables say or like a certain license plate or uh the description of a person like let's say that you know there's like a uh, you know six foot tall 30 year old white man or something like that you know it these types of tools can alert officers um, of the presence of this particular configuration of variables in a way that just expands the surveillance ratio so, so dramatically. Um, so I think this shift from query-based to alert-based systems is, is a really important one um, that's occurring today. Yeah, and I also, I really like the point where you write that the, the queries themselves are becoming data, right? So if another person has searched uh, some replaced the same person, then the query itself becomes as a kind of a quantified proxy for suspiciousness, right? Yeah, that was fascinating to me. And again, you know, that goes back to the like data is social, like, okay, well, what created that data? Humans engaging 
with the data and, and, and doing particular searches. Absolutely. Yeah, and it's also fascinating when you come, when it comes to this uh, social dimension, what is it that we actually track and what we don't track? And I really liked your comment uh, just mm-hmm. briefly when you write, like, and I quote, that we certainly have the technology to track guns and we would easily leverage existing technology to do more tracking. But gun owners are powerful political subjects. They have the resources to assert their gun <laughs> their guns should not be tracked. Right. So, so this is also part of this. Uh, Absolutely. Right? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. It's moving away from kind of like a, a technologically determinist narrative where the tech is causing certain things like, no, it's human use of these tech um, in certain ways and, and human non-use um, of, of the tech in certain ways yeah. as well. Um, so I, in chapter four, you look closer at the dynamics of kind of directed surveillance and the quantification of risk in the larger context of the shift from this intuition-based to data-driven policing. And you show how LAPD uses uh-huh. both place-based and person-based predictive policing. And and since the first... Uh, uh, at the first day, the place base will already be familiar to our listeners because we had uh, Simon Egbert and Matthias Lise uh, talking about this. So I wanted you oh, to focus, <laughs> focus more on the person-based, uh, person-based predictive policing um, and uh, the way these kind of risk scores are assigned to people. And you mentioned this uh, chronic offender bulletin. Uh, I, want, I wonder if it was discontinued after a while. But then mm-hmm. there are these uh, field interview cards, uh, the point system... Mm-hmm. And then, of course, the Operation Laser, which was also discontinued. But uh, maybe you can say maybe you can say more about this. And also, I recently read that uh, that now the social media is also being collected for this kind of field interview cards. And uh, there's even a new company that was allocated some funds to Media Sonar or something to scan through the social media and kind of integrate that data uh, in in when when people are stopped. So maybe you could say something about both what you experience and what the recent developments are uh, when. It's it comes to this? Sure, absolutely. Yeah. So, um, you know, whereas, whereas dragnet surveillance, like the automatic license plate readers, those tools collect data on everybody. Um, directed surveillance really is all about sort of focusing police attention and resources on the people and places that they deem highest risk. So as you mentioned, previous guests discussed the, the place-based predictive policing, which is largely used to predict uh, property crime. And the LAPD uses instead person-based predictive policing in order to predict violent crime. And so they used, as you mentioned, is discontinued now, but we, we can sort of discuss the, the for future developments um, in a second. At the time, they were using this operational laser, wherein basically um, individuals were assigned a risk score, like a points value, their, their criminal risk score. And Individuals would get five points if they were on parole or probation, five points for um, prior arrests with a handgun, um, five points for a violent crime on their rap sheet, five points if they had any gang affiliation. And then they received one point for every police contact. So every time the police stopped them, they would get another point added to their score. And so what ended up happening basically is you would get this like feedback loop or this recursive loop where Officers would be told, you know, hey, go and stop the people with the highest points values. Um, They would get stopped. Another point would get added to their score and they would get bumped to the top of the chronic offenders list. The chronic offenders list being basically this list of individuals by rank ordered by points value in the division. Um, And so you would have the same people getting stopped over and over. And I want to emphasize, you know, these folks are not like they're not wanted. There isn't an outstanding warrant for their arrest. Um, But what ends up happening is the folks that have the highest points value in the division, they get these chronic offender bulletins generated on them. And on these bulletins, you know, they they have their face and um, their name, but also, you know, information about vehicles, um, their affiliates or their associates, like who they've been stopped with previously or people that the police know that they're associated with, um, uh, information on all of the geographic locations that they were previously stopped at, this kind of thing. And so this is how the person-based policing was playing out in the LAPD. In other police departments, they focused on kind of a different analytic approach, like Chicago PD did did more of a network-based approach rather than this sort of like points value or risk score approach. But I think the underlying logic in these systems is similar, and that is that a small percentage of people are disproportionately responsible for the majority of violent crime. So if we can have, you know, police attention and resources directed at these folks, it will 
have a negative effect um, on the crime rate. And I think it also has this like added bonus from more more of an organizational legitimacy and legal compliance angle, um, as folks in the LAPD explained to me, you know, you are not allowed to stop someone due to their race alone, for example. But if they have sort of a high criminal risk score or are in a high crime neighborhood, it, it helps to sort of um, it makes it easier to meet the reasonable suspicion calculus in that kind of way. Um, and so legal scholars have talked about sort of what are the implications of this for criminal and constitutional law. And then in terms of, oh yeah, the, the future development. So as there was increasing public awareness about some of these tools, um, there was basically an audit done by the Office of the Inspector General in Los Angeles, and, and they found that the rollout or the deployment of a lot of these techniques like Operation Laser and, and the, the person in place-based predictive policing was very uneven throughout the department. Um, certain areas were, were using it a lot, whereas others weren't using it at all. It was being rolled out in very unsystematic ways that made it impossible to do any evaluations of the efficacy or of issues with bias and discrimination. Um, and also there was no evidence, basically, there was very weak evidence um, um, and definitely no independent evidence that, that this stuff was working. And so the LAPD actually discontinued the use of some of these techniques um, about a year and a half ago, I think I would have to go back to get the exact date. And so when, you know, I read the chief's statement at the time of, of what they were going to do, he said, you know, look, we're going to stop doing some of these predictive policing things and instead move towards precision policing, which will be, you know, defined in a future document or something like that. Well, that document sort of like hasn't come out yet. And I wonder to what extent the shift from predictive policing to precision policing is in fact a meaningful substantive shift versus like a rhetorical one. You know what I mean? Yeah. With laser precision, only without the laser. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, yeah, they talked about the precision of the laser, which is the predictive policing. So yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah. No. Um, yeah, and what about the social media use? Do you know anything more about the this kind of use? Of oh, yeah. So, okay. So, yeah, absolutely. So when I was doing my field work, um, they didn't have... So there are these field interview cards, which are basically um, police contact cards. So there are these small index size cards that every time a police officer um, stops somebody, they're trained to get as much information as they can and put it on the field interview card, you know, of course, name, birthday, that kind of basic information. But there's also a narrative component of the card, you know, what did you see them doing, um, where you can put like, who the individual was with that type of thing. When I was doing my field work, there wasn't a field for social media handles, for example. Um, but now there is and I was recently reading about this, probably the same article that you were um, about how they've added this now into this into this data collection mechanism. And I thought that was fascinating. So I wasn't actually able to, to observe that in my field work, um, but it, it seems like that is sort of the next natural natural step occurring here. And of course, like if you have someone's social media handle, then you often can see all of the network connections that they have, right? All Unless they have it hidden, all of the people on their friends list, all of the people that they follow, that kind of thing. So it just opens this like massive door um, for increased data collection of the individual stopped by the police, yes, but also this collateral data collection of all of the people that they're associated with. Hmm. Absolutely. And I mean, so the police uses all these technologies to survey others, but uh, they very often find themselves also being surveilled by their management. <laughs> so <laughs> I will turn to this part of your book, which I found really interesting. Uh, and you describe the ways in which these police officers resist being surveilled and, uh, and either with the help of trade union or through kind of individual strategies of uh, evasion or kind of destroying some equipment and so forth. <laughs> and uh, and so, so I would like to know more about that. And what I kind of really liked was the point that uh, what triggers most of this resistance is when the systems introduced for one purpose become repurposed by management for another, mm. for example, performance management, salary negotiations and something yeah. else, things like that. And I think this, this kind of function creep is, is something uh, fascinating here. So, and, and we see it across, uh, yeah. you know, uh, 
whatever kind of industry you are in, this is kind of the feature of the working life under the surveillance gaze of the management, right? And when when, when there is a possibility, mm. the technology will be abused. So maybe you could say something about how, how they kind of navigated this and... Uh, and uh, yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Yeah, this was one of the the sort of um, really interesting parts of the fieldwork because, admittedly, it was not one of my original research questions. Right, like understanding police resistance to these tools was was not um, how I had originally conceived of of this project. But then, on my very first ride along, you know, we were pulling up to this house, this vacant house that somebody had called 911 about because of a possible break-in or something. And the the sergeant that I was riding along with, he typed that he that we were code six, like meaning the unit had arrived and was responding. And I had this moment where I was like, wait, why is he having to manually type that into his car? You know, like I thought that <laughs> I had picked the LAPD because they were so technologically advanced. Like, isn't there some sort of automated mechanism for knowing the location of the vehicles? And so I asked him about that and he was like, oh yeah, you know, every car actually is equipped with an AVL or an automatic vehicle locator that pings the location of the vehicle every five seconds, but they're not turned on because of the police officer's union. And so it was sort of in that moment that I realized, like, of course, there's a labor story here, right, where the police are resisting being surveilled by their managers. And so I think the overall dynamic that's playing out, essentially, is that digital policing leaves digital trails. And these trails are susceptible to oversight um, and can increase some of the visibility of policing practices, um, not to the public necessarily, but to their managers. And so the officers that I talked to, you know, a lot of them complained about what they perceived as this kind of entrenchment of managerial control or infringement upon their their professional discretion or their autonomy or sort of a de-skilling. And, um, and as you sort of mentioned, a lot of these tools were originally created with one purpose. Like the AVLs were originally created to improve officer safety, right? Like if, so let's say an officer um, is down, like he was shot or he was injured and he's unable to give his location on the radio, um, you would be able to use the automatic vehicle locator to say like, okay, this is the location of the officer, let's send support. And so that was the original use case. But the resistance that I heard from officers, it was them complaining like, oh, I don't want, you know, my captain knowing that I've been at Starbucks too long or tracking my location of where I'm going and what I'm doing. Because that sort of that discretion and that autonomy is very fundamental to to police officers' occupational identity. And so, as you mentioned, this this function creep of things that originally might have been for um, officer safety or or accountability or something like that, moving into more of a performance evaluation or performance metric is really what like rankled the officers that I talked to. Um, they were very sort of distrusting of how management might use some of these new tools to to surveil them, if you will. Yeah, I think it speaks to also this kind of transformation of power relations and, and value also what, what kind of has value when you when you kind of start to valorize data <laughs> right? you displace the the individual discretion. And uh, and, uh, and Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that, that kind of that sort of resistance or or it is coming up in a whole bunch of different occupations. Um um, rather than rather than just policing, right? Like people want to sort of feel like their training and all of their twenty years of expertise or whatever is is invalidated, and that they're just now cogs in a machine or something like that. And so, you know, the, the savvy captains that I talked to, they would always emphasize, like, no, you know, officers are ultimately, you know, the ones at the end of the day that put handcuffs on people. That you know, they have to use their gray matter. I don't want them to have their noses buried in a computer, that kind of thing. These tools are just sort of another tool in their kit. Um, but but a lot of officers that I spoke with, particularly line officers, like patrol officers on the front lines, um, they express concern about about this sort of displacement, as you said, of, of their on the ground expertise in favor of like abstract technological tools and algorithms and, and these sort of inscrutable um, um, quantified things. Yeah, and I was thinking also of these kind of uh, lines of uh, 
conflict and frustration. I mean, in your book, you several times you you <laughs> the police call the call these analysts and and the civilian employees like eggheads <laughs> and pencil geeks and spreadsheet jockeys and and so forth. Yeah. So you can really feel the frustration with that. Yeah. But uh, but this is this is this is the kind of rivalry between these uh, sworn officers and the civilian employees. But you also have a similar kind of rivalry or kind of tensions between the uh, interagency uh, ones, mm. right? And so so there is also this organizational tensions. Maybe you could say something more about your experiences with with this. Uh, I find it fascinating. <laughs> sure. Yeah. I mean, so I think that um, sometimes sociological research uh, can can describe the police as like a monolith, you know, the police do this, the police do that. And, you know, in my field work, it really revealed that there are all of these cleavages and divisions and tensions, as you mentioned, between different facets, arms, parts of the organization and interorganizationally as well. So this came up, for example, um, one time when I was at the at JREC, which is like the Joint Regional Intelligence Center, the Fusion Center in Southern California. And as we were sort of walking down this like aisle of cubicles, I was with a, a local law enforcement agent and we were p- passing all of these federal agents who they were like covering up their papers on their desk and, and, and saying, you know, you're not authorized to see the work that I'm that I'm doing. And so there's this rivalry and, and tension between local and federal law enforcement agencies that I think has always existed, but is is being exacerbated by this information age. So what ends up happening is local law enforcement express that they feel that they're, you know, collecting all of this data, sending it up to these fusion centers, to the feds where it gets integrated, made available to federal agents, and they don't get any benefit, right? They don't then get access to the integrated data. And so they would complain about what they perceive to be this very asymmetrical data sharing relationship um, going on. And so, you know, much like, as you said, with, with the managerial dynamic here going on as well, I think that part of what's going on is just like a transposition of age-old tensions between frontline workers and their managers or between, you know, local and, and, and federal agencies, for example, but it's become amplified and like exacerbated in the digital age. Mm-hmm. And what I also found like, rather amusing was that, you know, they they obviously kind of resisted this function creep, so which means that they are pretty well aware of, of how data can be abused and misused. But they don't didn't seem particularly receptive to the critique of predictive policing and their own use of the same technologies on those they police, right? Which you describe as this cognitive dissonance. So maybe you can uh, say something about how they were reasoning uh, about this kind of tension. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, so so this came up. I was sometimes presenting some of this research while it was in progress to to working groups and that kind of thing. And um, you know, something that the the police had said a lot my field work is, is officers and said, you know, if you have nothing to hide, you have nothing to fear. Like, why should anybody care if they're included in our databases or if we're surveilling them, if they're not committing any crimes, right? If they have nothing to hide. But then, like, when you apply that to them at work, you know, well, if you have nothing to hide, you have nothing to fear. Why do you care if your captain knows where your vehicle is or how long you've been at Starbucks at or what you're doing when you're out on shift, that kind of thing? they didn't seem to apply it to their own work in the same type of way. And this, this came up when I was originally sort of presenting some of this work to um, uh, a number of lawyers. And one of the lawyers, or it was a law student, they said, they described it as, I think, like an empathy gap. They were like, do they not understand that the same logics that individual civilians are aggrieved about is exactly what they're complaining about too. And and no, I mean, that, that sort of sense-making really, really disappeared and, and, and did not apply. And I think, again, this speaks to the social nature of data. If data were just objective and they always spoke for themselves and they were, you know, just a mechanical reflection of what's going on in the world, people who don't have anything to hide would have nothing to fear. But that's not how it actually plays out. And I think that the officer resistance to some of these surveillance tools puts this like social side of data into very stark relief. Hmm. Yes, 
Uh, and uh, now in the in the next chapter, you write of how the use of big data and policing kind of amplifies and reproduces inequality, and we've touched upon that and and obscures power relations and deepens surveillance mm. of individuals and so forth. Uh, but uh, you still seem to kind of hold some hope uh, that more accurate uh, data would uh, reduce inequalities in policing and increase accountability of the police. And uh, and you write that uh, big data policing offers the ability to track individual police behaviors at a more granular level, which can fill informational gaps and be aggregated up to identify systemic patterns in the data. And that what is needed uh, are mechanisms for transparency, accountability, and ongoing assessment and so forth. And here I was thinking that I would actually like to challenge you a bit here because uh, is the lack of granular data and information really the problem we're kind of having with policing? Because, <laughs> and also uh, another thing is with these audits, right? This third party independent audits. I mean, who who mm-hmm. is doing these audits? Who is to audit the auditors? And what I'm looking at now, I mean, is really the the market of kind of private vendors and consultancy companies and audit experts that kind of pose as neutral and independent third parties and they specialize in algorithm auditing, compliance. And I mean, with every new regulation and every new standard and every new guideline, the market for mm. them expands, right? And and this yes. is basically what they want. So 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 I call this in my own thing that I'm writing right now this kind of compliance washing, which aligns really well with <laughs> kind of tech washing. <laughs> so so yeah, I, I'm wondering really yeah. like uh, transparency and data do not automatically translate into understanding, right? Or in action. Yeah. Uh, and to the contrary, I think very often if you have too much information, you know, too many audits, too many evaluation reports, like it leads to kind of disorientation and paralysis and even kind of enables legitimization of a continuous practice. It's a little bit like with this LAPD, like, okay, we yeah. uh, we kind of made an audit and we, we found that this, we kind of discontinued it, but, you know, we just call it something else and, and we will do a better risk assessment the next time, right? So so I wonder if yeah. it kind of runs the risk of, uh, of you know, con- <laughs> suggesting as a solution the same kind of you know, thing that, that kind of creates the problem because it's kind of this kind of logic of transparency and accountability. It's kind of trapped in the very same logic, right? It's it, it kind of doesn't yeah. break with it. So so because I'm thinking like, okay, uh, it's a bit like with these guns that <laughs> with the gun example, right? Or or yeah. it's like, okay, you can make a more accurate facial recognition, and we can have all the black people in there without any any kind of <laughs> deviations there. But do we really want a society where we have like uh, surveillance built into the all infrastructure, including like facial recognition? I mean, you can simply just say no. I mean, do yeah. we need all these audits, right? And and then I'm thinking like, okay, and when you relate it to the this kind of markets that push for these audits. I mean, it, it, it seems that the first impression is a kind of a good idea, right? But but then, okay, who's doing that? And and <laughs> and, and <laughs> normal regular citizens have no ability to control either the police or the auditors, and and there is nobody yeah. to control the auditors, right? So and and so yes. many of these reports are kind of paid by the people who buy them <laughs> so, so the, the question of independence yeah. is also kind of distorted so I don't know I, I just wanted to kind of uh, <laughs> question this part a bit so. <laughs> yeah yeah I think you you raised so many so many key points there and I'll, I'll sort of move, move backwards from what you said more, most recently so yes I do think that creating sort of like some new kind of accountability or audit structure can can serve to essentially like bureaucratize all of this surveillance and and can, in fact, um, serve to legitimize the process in the first place. Instead of saying like, hey, you know, these practices are not something that should even be occurring. We need to focus on, on, on um, you know, whether it's like abolition or moratoriums of certain technologies or whatever. Instead, you know, let's just like watch them. Let's like make sure that we have some independent audits or you have some front end accountability mechanisms and that kind of thing. And you can create essentially this like even greater surveillance infrastructure wherein it's not just about like the surveillers and the people that are being surveilled, but it's like surveilling the surveillers and then who's going to do the surveilling of those people, et cetera, et cetera. So I understand very much what you're saying about it can sort of become a runaway train. And I think that this is like some of the discourse if you look at the continuum um, uh, from like reformers on one end to abolitionists on the other, that would very much be what an abolitionist argument is around this is like 
look, you know, creating the, these new infrastructures of surveillance that maybe it's it's surveilling the police or the people that are surveilling the police is fundamentally serving to to legitimize and bureaucratize the existing practices that occur. So it's sort of missing the mark. And then that gets to, to your first point, which is like, is it really the data that are the problem? And, you know, as a sociologist, like, of course, I would say, no, the underlying issues that are at play here, they, they are being put in stark relief in this data-driven or data-intensive policing context. But, but we already had these issues with the system around inequality, around structural disadvantage, around resource deprivation and the social patterning of these things, around racism, around um, uh, uh, segregation, um, et cetera, et cetera. And so like an analogy that I sometimes use is that we already had all of these cracks in the system, like if you imagine cracks in pavement or, or in the sidewalk. And it's not that the data is creating those those cracks. Instead, really, what's just happening is the data is like an injection of dye in those cracks that illuminates those fault lines. It serves to actually, in some ways, codify, you know, these are the patterned ways in which people are being treated differently by the police, or these are the patterned ways in which different neighborhoods are policed differently or unequally. You know, these are the patterned ways. And so I very much agree with you that like the data is not the root problem here. Um, it is the the underlying structural and social dynamics that are in the data is sort of just like highlighting them or, or, or illuminating them in that kind of way. And so, you know, there have been some moves towards more of instead of like a a let's police and track the police use of these tools more let's have some like outright moratoriums of certain technologies like certain jurisdictions in the in the u.s have, have outlawed you know facial recognition for example um that type of thing however you know and i'd be curious to to know more about the international context in the united states like a big challenge is that um policing is is so decentralized. I think there's something like 18,000 different law enforcement agencies in the United States, and the, and the majority of which are nowhere near the size of the LAPD, right? It's like yeah. under 50 officers or something like that. And so all of the regulation and governance and even like information about the different practices and tools and, and data sources that are at play here is like so piecemeal. Mm. And it, it feels very... Well, it is very decentralized and it, it, it's very difficult to to sort of know, like, what is the point of leverage? You know, where should where do the teeth exist? You know, and, and there's massive disagreement about this. You know, some folks say, oh, let's look to administrative law in order to govern some of this. Others say, let's look at regulation. Some people say, no, you know, we really need to focus on on um, controls at the point of data collection. Other people are like, no, that's futile. Let's focus on use. Others are like, it, it, it's just, it's very um, piecemeal, decentralized, disorganized. And, and you know, as one interviewee in, in information technology called it, he, he said it's like the Wild West, basically, yeah. um, in, in terms of the current state of affairs with sort of collect all the data now and analyze it later, regardless of whether or not we sort of like have an express purpose for doing so in the first place. Yeah, and it's like a wild west also in the realm of the law, right? <laughs> so in the last part of you, yeah. you talk about these legal implications and and you sketch all kind of key issues. But what I found actually most interesting in that discussion and kind of is, is first this, uh, this third party doctrine that is used to kind of circumvent the Fourth Amendment mm. protections. And the second is kind of possibilities for parallel construction, which I thought you could maybe explain because I, I'm not sure people familiar with that. So, uh, so sure. that would be interesting, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so parallel construction is basically the idea of hiding how you originally learned information in, in case the way that you learned it is going is like unconstitutional, for example, or is from some surveillance technology that you don't want to disclose or something like that. So here's like a real world non-law enforcement example context. The way that I sort of describe it is let's say you think that your spouse is cheating on you, is having an affair. And so you you hack into their phone, um, go through their text messages and, and find evidence of this affair. But you don't want to disclose to your spouse that you like violated their privacy and hacked into their phone. Um, and so you come up with some other explanation of how you learned this information about them cheating on you, right? You're like, oh, I you know ran into somebody and they told me something or something. 
something like that. So that's sort of, that's parallel construction. Some people talk about it, about it like evidence laundering or data laundering, for example, disguising how you found this in the first place. And so because a lot of um, these technologies are very invisible, um, there's not a lot of documentation around it, and a lot of their use is not making it into court documents, right? There's not a lot of, for example, like in uh, uh, an affidavit, um, you know, they don't say like, oh, I queried this guy in Palantir's system and, and found this information about him. It renders invisible a lot of this like policing that goes on at a very early stage in the criminal legal process. And as a result, it's impossible to use legal tools through criminal legal processing, whether it's like at early stages or in a few cases that actually make it to court, you know, saying, oh, this is a violation of somebody's Fourth Amendment rights, this type of thing. Mm -hmm. That opportunity never even arises because all of it is rendered invisible at such an early phase in the discretionary process. And so, you know, I did not, um, of course, observe, because essentially I was surveilling the, the police in order to understand how they were surveilling people. I did not observe parallel construction um, going on, but merely what this law chapter, one of the arguments it makes is it, it provides increased opportunities for that um, to occur. And there's lots of lawyers that are doing fascinating work on this issue. Um, and somewhat relatedly, it is sort of the, the, the first part of this around what are the implications for existing legal doctrine, right? So what is a search in the digital age? Like previously, it had been defined in terms of like a, a person or their effects, this type, their papers, their effects. Well, like what about querying someone's name in a database? Does that constitute a search? Um, you know, having, rubbing up existing legal doctrine on the digital reality of today, like ends up being very messy and you have this very um, uh, diverse is sort of like a generous word, but chaotic um, um, case law that's going on now redefining and, and, and defining what constitutes a search. Should we have higher standards for meeting the reasonable suspicion threshold if it's easier to meet that with the proliferation of digital data? You know, all, all of these types of like open open questions um, about how this is going to play out in the courts. And I think that it's going to be fascinating to sort of observe um, um, in the future because, you know, the courts always lag behind uh, technology by, by 10 or 20 years. Yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> no, but also also this uh, role of this kind of third-party doctrine and what all kind of data... Oh, yeah, the third-party doctrine. Yeah, okay, so basically the idea behind that is that, like, look, there... There actually are quite a lot of constraints on legal constraints on what information the police can gather um, directly from individuals because there are all of these protections against government intrusion into individuals' lives, right? But one way that you know, so like for example, the, the police would need a warrant in order to enter your phone, enter your home, and rummage through all of the drawers in your office or something like that. Fine. One way, though, that law enforcement kind of circumvent that is like relying on this idea of the third party doctrine that like, look, we as individuals are constantly consenting to giving our digital information away to private companies, right? You know, we're, we're giving our email, like our, our Facebook login, our, you know, all credit card information, like all kinds of information all the time. The thing that comes up most commonly is through cell phone providers. So like our location information, for example, our, our, our cell location site information. Um, and so we're not consenting to the police, but if we give it to these third-party providers, then can the police sort of circumvent some of the protections and appellate checks and that type of thing on government surveillance? And, and the answer seems to Yes. Now, this is playing out in the Supreme Court in the U.S. in really interesting ways. Like there was this Carpenter decision a couple of years ago that's very relevant here, et cetera. So I think that this is far from, from resolved. There is definitely not legal consensus on this issue. But I think the third party doctrine is only going to become increasingly um, relevant as we move forward here. Hmm. In the end, you you write that the the key impediment to effective reform is the role of private companies in the big data policing space. And now we see that even... Microsoft is involved in these things and also is offering these kind of, uh, what is it, the government cloud, this Azure, right? So you have, mm, yeah, you have, yeah. you have more, it doesn't seem that it's becoming less, so rather because of the pandemic crisis and so forth, it kind of accelerated yeah. this market, right? So, uh, and also market in workplace surveillance uh, just expanded massively. So mm. I was thinking, how do you see... Uh, 
these developments and and is there any possibility to do something <laughs> realistic yeah yeah i mean i think it's interesting that you bring up the pandemic for example as well because like what ends up happening is again this process of function creep right yeah. like a lot originally a lot of data integration efforts um or or you know even even basic surveillance and tracking might originally be created um for for very sort of like benevolent type reasons, right? If you use electronic medical records as an example, right? They were originally created to improve um, uh, prescription drug and care coordination, but increasingly electronic medical records have sort of been drawn into the harder edge of social control, right? They're, they're now used by the police to police the illicit use and sale of prescription drugs. And so, you know, again, we're seeing a lot of, of um, the proliferation uh, of surveillance in the context of COVID for, for public health justifications and this type of thing. And I think that something to sort of look for in the future is this, this concept of function creep. You know, there is a tendency once data exists for it to be repurposed and used for another. This is sort of back to this data as capital idea. It, 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 it's just sort of um, uh, makes sense in that way. And I think that, you know, as a sociologist, I tend to be like a little bit less interested in intent and more interested in outcomes. So like regardless of the reason that the, these tools and practices were deployed in the first place, um, it, it's critical to look at what are the outcomes, how are they being used, how are they being sort of readapted, reused, re-justified, um, that type of thing moving forward. Brilliant. So I think we're moving to, towards the end. Uh, is there anything else you would like to share or any tips, any ideas? <laughs> <laughs> I know everyone's always like, so what are we, you know, what do you, what do you suggest in terms of like how to sort of not be surveilled? And, you know, I have to admit that like as a researcher that studies surveillance for a living, I go back and forth so much between, um, on the one hand being like resistance is futile. And then on the other being like, we are enabling in our ongoing consent, you know, all this massive surveillance infrastructure um, to profit off of us and others in very like unequal kind of ways. And so, it, you know, it's funny, sometimes I'm, I'm like, oh, you know, I, you shouldn't consent to the, to the, to yeah. the scans at the airport. And you, you, but you know, it's just, I, I think that, I think my bottom line is that basically individual level resistance, putting this on the shoulders of individuals is too much to ask any one person, right? Like to completely avoid the surveillance gaze of the government, like that's ridiculous. You're not even going to be able to have a job or go to school or, you know, participate in podcasts um, <laughs> if you're trying to like completely avoid surveillance. And so I think really the 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 answer is more the structural than than the individual level in that in that way. Yeah, absolutely. No, I agree. <laughs> Just a question of how to get there. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yep, yep, yep. But we leave it for another podcast. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let me know when you record that one. <laughs> okay, so this was Sarah Brain on her new book, uh, Predict and Surveil. So thanks for joining me and thanks for listening. <laughs> thanks.